It's New Comics Day, Wednesday, September 28th, 2016. And here we are again, friends, out of 40 days in the wilderness and into the Fortress of Solitude, you're listening to Season 3 of God in Comics. On today's show, conversion stories, those moments that change everything about how we see the world. We'll discuss some of these pivotal turning points in the lives of our favorite comic book characters and ask how all of this impacts the conversion stories in our own lives. Plus, we'll have our recommendation, this or that, and a whole lot more. I'm your host, Father Jonathan Michikin. I am rector of Church of the Holy Comforter in Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania. On the line with me today is Father Kyle Tomlin. Father Kyle, where are you? I'm at Church of the Messiah in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And also on the line today is Father Matt Stromberg. Father Matt, for the first time, where are you? I'm at St. George's Episcopal Church in Schenectady, New York. And here we all are. Good to be back with you. You may hear the bells uh, if you're listening in in the in the background, just starting to chime as we as we come in here. So that's a nice sort of lead in. Well, just before we uh, started recording, I actually put up on Facebook, I mentioned that we were about to start recording. I said, tell us something random or funny, and we may just mention it on, mention it on the show. So I'll just pass a couple of these on. Uh, John Weiler? Wheeler? I'm not sure how to pronounce that. But anyhow, John says, it may not be appropriate, but today it occurred to me that everyone breaks wind, but no one ever fixes it. <laughs> so that's a good observation, John. Um Zach, uh, Zach Giuliano says uh, he just actually arrived in Rome. He's there with Christopher Wells and some other folks in the Living Church. But Zach said, I was worried my cabbie from the airport might actually be a kidnapper as he escorted me to an unmarked van. It turned out all right. So that's good. And then um, actually uh, the the greatest comment yet uh, obviously from Luke Stromberg, who says, Too much pressure. I have to get to class. Looking forward to the new season. <laughs> so, there we are. Uh, there we are with that. Our recommendation, our first recommendation of season three, is going to be Father Kyle. So, Father Kyle, what do you have for us today? I actually have a joint recommendation today. Um, oh, let's keep let's keep illegal substances out of this, Father Kyle. The kids might be <laughs> listening. We don't want to have a negative influence. There you go. My recommendation today <laughs> is uh, is for Superman Earth One and Batman Earth One. Uh, Superman Earth One is currently out in three separate volumes. Uh, the first two volumes are done by J. Michael Straczynski and Shane Davis, and the uh, third volume is by J. Michael Straczynski and Adrian Syaf. Batman Earth One is done by Jeff Johns, who, after indulging so heavily in DCs this summer, I have come to realize is probably my favorite writer ever now. But it's done by Jeff Johns and Gary Frank, who is perhaps one of the greatest artists uh, that's out there today. But the idea behind both um, Superman Earth One and Batman Earth One, and there's also uh, two others, uh, Teen Titans Earth One and Wonder Woman Earth One, um, but I have yet to read those, so I won't say anything about those. The idea behind this whole Earth One um, 
set of books that DC has put out is an attempt to do kind of what Marvel did with the Ultimate series about 16 years ago, which is to take the characters that we all know and love and to um, modernize and update their stories and also to try to add a little bit of an element of realism to the stories where you know certain things may not have been as realistic in the ongoing continuity. These books tend to have a very cinematic feel to them, especially the Batman Earth One. Uh, after I finished reading that, I found myself thinking, I wish that was the Batman movie that they had done recently. It was very well done, and I, I know that Zack Snyder borrowed certain elements from that story, particularly the style of character that Alfred is. But the Superman Earth One story uh, tackles his arrival in Metropolis as a young man trying to figure out what to do with his life. And through the first volume of the story, he explores um, who he's going to be and what he's called to do. And, uh, and of course, his powers impact that. And uh, in the second and third volume, we get attacks that are related to his birthplace, to his uh, Kryptonian heritage. Some very interesting redevelopment of characters like Zod and Parasite in the Superman stories, and, um, and yet still some very classic elements to things like Lois Lane and uh, Jimmy Olsen and Perry White. The uh, Batman Earth One story has a great take on Alfred and on what happened to Bruce Wayne after his parents were murdered. When we hear about Bruce Wayne's parents being murdered, he just goes to live by himself with a butler taking care of himself. And if you think about it, that would never be allowed in real life. So this story deals with that issue and makes Alfred the guardian of Bruce Wayne and a um, former military friend of Thomas Wayne, Bruce's father, and explains some of the development of Bruce as a, as a soldier uh, who fights crime in Gotham City. And um, just some wonderful treatment of the penguin in that Batman Earth One story. I haven't read the second volume of Batman Earth One yet, so I can't comment on that. But certainly in volume one, a great treatment of the Penguin. So if you want to see some fresh takes on Superman and Batman and uh, maybe cleanse your palate if you've not particularly cared for the Zack Snyder version of the two of these characters, I uh, recommend that you go out and pick up these volumes. You certainly won't be disappointed. You know, over the summer, I, I I watched, I finally watched Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, uh, and uh, I live tweeted it as I watched it. So anybody who uh, wants to see that, at Fr Jonathan is my, my Twitter feed, and you can go back through and enjoy all of my lovely commentary on it. But that that's a, a a great recommendation, Father Kyle. I'm really looking forward to looking at those books, especially. Uh, with Straczynski involved because I think he's a, a really great writer and I'll vouch for the Wonder Woman book there's only one volume of that out right now it's by Grant Morrison and it's nuts just like everything else Grant Morrison writes uh, but it's but it's pretty good I enjoyed it I'll check that one out I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to reading the Teen Titans one as well I think it's just creative stuff that they're doing with it. And it's cool because they don't have to rely so heavily on the continuity and can kind of build forward with it. Yeah. Yeah, I'll second the recommendation for the Grant Morrison Wonder Woman. It was uh, very well done. 
Okay, well, we're going to move into our main discussion, and our main discussion for today is on conversion stories. And the first thing we need to do is define a little bit about what are we talking about when we're talking about conversion stories. Um, so what is conversion? The way that I've been thinking of this or looking at this is that conversion is something, something transcendent that happens to us, something outside ourselves which suddenly interrupts our lives and changes everything about how we see the world. Now, of course, as Christians, we have a particular sort of conversion story that we tend to, to like to tell about our experience of becoming Christians, um, but that's not necessarily the stories that we're thinking of in comics, um, although if, if there are some examples, we can bring those up of religious conversions. Uh, but there are other types of conversions, conversion stories that happen and that have probably some kind of corollary back to something that's a little um, more like what we're, you know, we might think of or encounter um, in, um, in ministry or in discipleship. So with no further ado, let's just talk about some examples of, of, of these kinds of... Uh, conversions, these kinds of changes that take place in characters, if you can think of any. Um, we'll start with uh, Father Matt. What, what do you got? I was thinking in particular of characters that went from being villains to fighting on the side of good. I suppose we could also think of, uh, of characters who went in the other direction, but, but mine was more a, a conversion for the good. Of course, uh, we did a whole podcast on Spider-Man, and, and Spider-Man, uh, his own origin story has a kind of conversion, where he goes from being sort of a person who's just out for himself, making making money, working as a wrestler, and he, he realizes, um, after letting a criminal run by him, that he's made the wrong choices in life. You know, especially when it, it, it results in the death of, of his, his Uncle Ben. And that sort of event is a moment of conversion for him, where he, he shifts from being basically just in it for himself and for his own like ego gratification to, to being a self-sacrificing hero. There are others who have that similar conversion in their attitudes. And one of them I was thinking of is probably... He's, he's a bit of a lesser-known character. Plastic Man is, is he's kind of a, a goofy character, and he's often played up for comic effect. He's sort of the comic relief in a lot of stories. But his origin story is really, really pretty powerful. So Plastic Man started off his life as Patrick O'Brien, or um, as he was known in the criminal underworld, uh, Patrick the eel O'Brien, and he was sort of a petty crook. He uh, was was a criminal. In a heist that he's involved in, things go wrong, show up, and he is shot in the arm and falls into a bat of chemicals, as so often happens in the books. He falls in the bat of chemicals, and his, his so-called friends leave him for dead, and they drive off. And he stumbles out and sees that his friends have hightailed it out of there and left him. He's wounded, but he manages to 
escape into the woods, into a mountainous area, and there he is rendered unconscious because of his wound. And when he awakes, he is in a monastery, and he was taken in by um, a kindly monk who 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 uh, founds finds him uh, wounded and 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 gives him sanctuary in in the monastery and nurses him back to health. And he even and I I'm not sure how ethical this is, but it's it kind of reminds me a bit of um, Les Miserables. He kind of turns the police uh, off of his trail too when they come by asking questions and um, Patrick O'Brien is so touched by this um, this monk's act of kindness you know his eyes have been sort of opened and you know to to who it is that really cares for him the stranger showed him more sympathy than his uh, you know his fellow criminals and he decides to turn a new leaf and discovers he has these amazing powers because of the chemical vat that he fell into. He could stretch all over and change his shape. And he uses his power to, to fight crime. But as an undercover criminal, he sort of like is, is uh, just looking to uh, gain information on, on what's going on in the underworld. So he's like, um, is he like the Green Hornet in that respect? I suppose, yeah. He eventually goes on to be a police officer. He kind of always has a kind of criminal edge to him. I mean, because that's sort of his past and that's what he knows. But I always thought his origin story was rather interesting, especially mm-hmm. because of the religious element. Yeah, you know, actually, you, you've just made me think of one that hadn't occurred to me before we started, but that actually fits really well into this, and that would be Doctor Strange. Um, ah, yeah. And we're going we're gonna to do a, a whole show after the movie comes out about Doctor Strange. Uh, but talk about a character who, in his at least in his origin story, really had a shift. I mean, here was a guy, he was this very well-known surgeon who, of course, charged a lot of money, and he was incredibly arrogant and self-centered about the whole thing and was just in it for himself. Um, And then he has a car accident, and his hands are very badly damaged, and he's not able to do, you know, not able to perform surgeries anymore. And so he exhausts all the medical options and um, eventually ends up going to essentially... Uh, it's not a Christian monastery, but something like a monastery, maybe like a Buddhist temple or something, except they don't actually call it that out in, in um, you know, in the mountains somewhere in the east, uh, where he meets an ancient figure appropriately enough named the Ancient One. Uh, and uh, the Ancient One teaches him, basically guides him into essentially the magical arts which he doesn't believe a whiff of, doesn't care anything about. He's looking for what's the trick, what's the scientific whatever behind this thing, because all I really care about is getting my hands fixed, when in fact um, what actually has to happen there eventually is instead of his hands being fixed, his whole world changes, not just in that he becomes a sorcerer, but that he comes to realize that the world is a lot bigger and a lot stranger than he thought, and it makes him a better person. It makes him care about other people in a way that he never did 
ironically enough, even when he was a doctor. You can read this in the, the early Doctor Strange comics, and I have been reading some of those early Doctor Strange um, where he shows up in, uh, oh, I forget the name of it. Um, it wasn't... Strange Tales. Strange Tales, thank you. And uh, those are those are really great, but there's also a great reimagining of it that came out a couple of years ago in 2012, um, part of the season one series that Marvel did. They did Doctor Strange season one. That's written by Greg Pak, who I don't think we've mentioned before in this program, but who is a, a really good uh, author and did a great job of kind of modernizing, bringing into the um, into the current decade, uh, but still telling basically that same story about Doctor Strange. You know, there's two of these that I uh, that I've kind of thought of. One of them actually just came to me now as as uh, Father Matt was talking, but seems to be you're inspiring all of us today, Father Matt. But one of the ones that jumped out at me as I was thinking about this for the show is is uh, Lex Luthor. I think most of our listeners who are at all familiar with Superman know a little bit about Lex Luthor's background that he's a scientist um, who possesses a level of jealousy around Superman. He kind of wants to be a Superman in the eyes of the rest of the world. And at the same time, he he distrusts um, Superman's alien nature. So he's always looking to, um, to kind of bring Superman down and to find out more about him so that he can contain him and control him. And that was really the, uh, the model of, of Lex Luthor that they used in the new 52 uh, relaunch of Superman uh, five years ago. And, you know, early on in Grant Morrison's run in action comics, Lex Luthor is the scientist who is hired by the government to, um, to get some samples of Superman so that he can begin to work with finding ways to defeat him. And uh, eventually Lex uses some samples to try to create his own Superman, resulting in Bizarro later on. But, you know, this, this kind of criminal or quasi-criminal in some way, Lex Luthor, who's always uh, the arch nemesis of Superman, meets a sudden change in, uh, in the miniseries Forever Evil that Jeff Johns did a couple of years ago during the run of the New 52. At the very beginning of Forever Evil, you find Lex Luthor in a helicopter with a representative from Cord Industries, Ted Cord, the Blue Beetle, and Lex is threatening him and his entire family when all of a sudden there's this, you know, that's sort of the height of the Lex Luthor evil. You know, he's threatening his family, wanting to, to monopolize and run every industry that he can run. And all of a sudden there's this great disruption in the universe and in comes the Injustice League from another world. And Lex's plane crashes or his helicopter crashes. And you very quickly see Lex Luthor change from the guy that he was that wanted to do everything he could to stop Superman and being opposed to the heroes to realizing somebody needs to step in. All the heroes disappear in the wake of this arrival of the Injustice League, and Lex steps up and becomes a superhero. And so the whole Forever Evil series is Lex's ascension into the role of superhero himself, which culminates in his joining the Justice League. And, uh, and he begins to, in the wake of the death of the new 52 Superman, don Superman's armor. 
and takes up his cape and now is a Superman fighting alongside the uh, pre-New Super, pre-New 52 Superman. So it's an interesting shift that we see in Lex Luthor, where once he was this great enemy, um, now all of a sudden he's become a superhero um, amongst the other superheroes. We'll see how long that one lasts. Sure. I, I can't see them keeping Lex Luthor for very long in the Justice League. I, yeah, did they, did they do something similar in, in Marvel Comics? Doctor Doom, at least recently, mm-hmm. had a change of heart and was was a good guy uh, for a while. I, I'm kind of behind on Marvel. He is, and he's actually becoming the new Iron Man. That's right. Yeah, I heard something like that. Yeah. Um, I know he, he, he's been in um, Brian Michael Abendi's uh, Iron Man run, which is which I've read the early issues of, and it's really pretty good. Yeah. One, one of them, one conversion that I was thinking of is the Falcon, and and his origin story is really sort of convoluted, but I think his change is interesting because it has to do uh, with the rearranging of reality by the Red Skull using the Cosmic Cube. Sam Wilson grew up in Harlem, and his father was a community activist and and a pastor. And Sam, despite having very good parents, sort of is very troubled, and he rejects his father's faith. Uh, You know, to his surprise, his father responds basically by, by you know, giving him some uh, of of comparative theology and religion, and saying, "Well, why don't you explore things and think about it for a while." And um, the next night, his father is killed trying to break up a fight uh, in the neighborhood. And uh, a year later, his mother's killed. And Sam Wilson becomes so embittered by the death of his parents that he becomes uh, a criminal and a drug runner. And he goes by the name of Snap Wilson. But he lands on 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 a jungle island when he's running drugs to Rio de Janeiro and gets involved in, in this group of, uh, you know, like Nazi exiles. Why that? Why he got involved with a group of Nazi exiles as uh, an African-American man has never really been too clear to me. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but the Red Skull changes reality with the Cosmic Cube to make it so that Sam Wilson never uh, turned bad and he, he, he lands on, on the island, um, and, and instead of, um, you know, being a bad guy, he, he organizes the natives into a revolt, and he, he, he becomes, like, the perfect partner. And this is all part of the Red Skull's, you know, elaborate, nefarious plan. He does find out that, you know, his whole uh, history has been a lie, but... But at that point, he's already lived his life as as a decent person for so long that becomes who he really is, uh, which is sort of very complicated and confusing uh, account. But but here here we have a, a a bad guy who was changed into a good guy because of the cosmic uh, cube uh, plan. <laughs> the other one that I was going to say that you I kind of lost my train of thought earlier, but Matt, you had. Uh, kind of inspired this one while you were talking about spider-man as a conversion story is um is venom 
you know, Venom. Venom starts out in the comics as this evil monster that has uh, revenge plans for Spider-Man because he casts the symbiote off. And so he inhabits Eddie Brock, who's a uh, news reporter who, or news photographer who is um, the rival of Peter Parker. And so you've got uh, the symbiote who hates Spider-Man and Eddie Brock who hates Peter Parker. And uh, together they target Peter Parker's life to make it hell. But really quickly within the 1990s, in Spider-Man, you start to find the shift in Venom because Eddie Brock is a Roman Catholic. He starts to get this sense of needing to protect the innocent. And uh, Venom starts to become what they call the lethal protector. He's the guy that will, when he senses innocents are in danger, take any measure necessary to protect those innocents. And that kind of carries with Venom for quite a while. Uh, through the remainder of the 1990s. And then you see, you know, Venom becomes departed from Eddie Brock for a while and attaches himself to Matt Gargan, the Scorpion. And then Venom comes to inhabit Flash Thompson. And this was the Venom series that began back around 2011, I believe, and uh, which was a great series, really, really great series. Rick Remender... Um, wrote the first part of it but Venom becomes Agent Venom and he becomes a super soldier much like Captain America and he's you know got Flash's sense of honor as a military man and um, Flash's hero worship of Spider-Man comes into play so that he wants the Venom to be like Spider-Man and you see this um, you know taking place throughout that run Flash and Venom struggle to be good and uh, I was just reading today that Marvel has now separated the symbiote from Flash Thompson again and is moving back into the dark corner of Venom being a bad guy. So you've got this, you know, this kind of flow from good, from bad to good to bad again that's taking place in mm. Venom. You know, it's funny because we all kind of came with a couple of ideas and I haven't even... Uh, mention the ones that I had uh, come with because they just keep tumbling out. The more we talk about it, the more I think of more of them. Doc Ock when he becomes Spider-Man. Yeah. Uh, the X-Men, pretty much the whole X-Men story is about types of conversions. Right. Um, Magneto. Um, I mean, you know, you could just go on and on and on with this, despite the fact that there are very few, if any, examples of an actual sort of Christian conversion uh, happening. There are a lot of examples of a kind of conversion that we're talking about. G. Willow Wilson is the writer probably best known at this point for, for Ms. Marvel, the, the newer Ms. Marvel series, um, where she has created um, a, uh, a, a character who is a, a, a teenage Pakistani-American girl um, and a Muslim. And um, G. Willow Wilson herself is a Muslim, a convert to uh, Islam, um, having grown up basically, uh, basically an atheist, raised as a as a secular atheist. But I found this quote from her talking about this was in an interview that she did back in 2010 when her her memoir, The Butterfly Mosque, which she wrote about her experience of conversion, came out. And this is, this is what she says, and I'd like to see what you guys think of this quote. She says, let's face it, when you hear convert, you think crazy. People tend to stick with whatever tradition they were born into. 
not because they necessarily see it as the ultimate truth, but because it has personal, symbolic meaning for them. To convert to a different religion is to say you believe there is more truth in it than in the one you left behind, which is neither postmodern nor terribly PC. I thought that was a really interesting, um, interesting quote, and I, I wonder what you guys, what you guys think. Well, I, I think that's a fascinating point about um, how we've sort of changed our attitude towards, you know, why we we adopt a faith. It, it's sort of okay into a faith. And, and, and to to practice it, um, in, uh, but but to to uh, adopt the faith, it, it, it's it's more of a radical step because it's a critique uh, of what's left behind. So when when people turn from secularism, that could be uh, seen as a critique on secularism, and you're really not supposed to critique other people's choices as far as as, as as what they believe because they're all kind of universally valid at least in you know popular consensus yeah i mean that's what i thought was really interesting about what she says because truth is not seen as a category ultimate truth is not seen i mean personal truth is you know follow your bliss or whatever and so that actually is the way, whenever you hear somebody talking about conversion to a religion or a spiritual path or whatever, that tends to be the language that's used around it is, oh, you were following your personal, you know, whatever it is to its fulfillment. And so if this makes you feel better and gives you, you know, better quality of life, um, then, uh, then go for it. Uh, Father Stephen Freeman, who's an Orthodox uh, priest, and he's a convert to Orthodoxy um, from Anglicanism, actually. But he wrote something about this um, six, eight months ago, where he was talking about how people used to say that to him when he first became Orthodox. And of course, his life was miserable at that point. He wasn't making as much money as he had before. He had uh, a lot of um, you know, personal relationships that had been severed because of this change. Uh, he had, uh, I mean, he wasn't complaining about it, but he was, you know, basically he said, you know, listen, if I wanted my life to be better and more fulfilling, I wouldn't have done this. I did this because it was where the truth led. And I just, I think that's interesting, you know, even though obviously, you know, I'm not a Muslim. And uh, so G. Willow Wilson and I are coming at this from different categories I think it is interesting, nevertheless, that she points out this blinder that we have about uh, truth itself being a motivation for conversion. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. Um, that that little bit at the beginning of that quote jumped out at me, where she said that it's often seen as you, you're crazy. Right. Um, you know, I, it made me think for a moment of Bob Dylan that when Bob Dylan became a Christian. One of the things he said at the time was, you know, everybody used to come up to me and say, you're a prophet. And he said, now that I speak the truth about Jesus Christ, everybody says, you're no prophet. You know, they all regarded him as crazy for having having seen the light, as it were, and um, turned to Christ. And that tends to be the way people react when there's a conversion that takes place, you know, however big or small that may be. 
that sense of, well, you're, you're kind of crazy for this, or there's at least a suspicion that maybe something might be a little bit wrong with you. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me that what's probably the most popular religious song of all time? Amazing probably Grace. Amazing Grace. I was going to say Kumbaya, but go ahead. <laughs> Amazing Grace, I think, has, has it beat. Everybody knows Amazing Grace. And it, yeah. it, it's, um, but it, listen to the lyrics. You know, Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. It's, it's very dramatic. It's talking about this movement, not this gentle sort of transition, but a movement from death to life, from ignorance to enlightenment. <laughs> and it resonates with us. I mean, if you know the story of John Newton, I mean, he was a, he was a slave trader that became a Christian and eventually an abolitionist. But he was a pretty dramatic uh, change in, in his life. I think we, we see people like that, and it, it, it scares us. It scares us to think that this whole God thing might be real. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that, you know, it can completely turn my life upside down. It's easier to sort of put that sort of dramatic change into like a, a psychological category or, or something like that. Yeah, we, we like what we know. And we don't, we fear the unknown, right? And that's one of the things that comes about in the midst of conversion is that, as you pointed out before, there's an abandoning of what you know and a stepping into what you don't know in a sense. You know, we don't want to press that too far, but you, I think you can get my point from that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, and I think um, you guys are, are both spot on with this. Um, it's the fear of, how is this going to turn my life upside down? And I think part of what Wilson is getting at there and part of what is problematic in, in the way that we think about um, conversion in the culture now is we don't like the idea of somebody reaching for ultimate truth. We don't mind the idea of personal truth because personal truth means conversion for you, but not necessarily for me. Whereas if you if you are seeking some kind of ultimate truth, well, that might have an impact on me. Uh -huh. um, and we don't really know how to live with each other in such a way so that we can disagree about these things. I mean, just take the example that I keep bringing up, right? I mean, Wilson obviously has come to a very different conclusion about what the ultimate truth is than I have as a Christian. And yet... You know, I can look at what she is saying and find some piece of common ground in it. And, like, I think it's possible for us to coexist without either pretending like we don't, don't disagree or going to the other extreme and, and saying, well, because we disagree, um, we should kill each other or, <laughs> right. you know, or right. something like that, which I think is the other thing that people think is, well, if you, you know, if you disagree with me about ultimate reality, that must mean that you are going to try to coerce me in some way into accepting mm -hmm. ultimate mm -hmm. reality, which at least as far as Christianity goes, um, and there certainly are glaring historical examples of where Christians have done have gotten this completely wrong, but from a biblical 
uh, perspective, you should never force anybody to try to, you know, you know what I mean? Like God himself does not force, uh, force us in that, in that way. Um, and I, I think maybe people's, uh, apprehension comes from, well, you know, when we have this kind of conversion experience, this born again kind of experience, a person could be very zealous about the new truth that they have embraced. So, uh, you know, I know a, a lot of people who had dramatic conversion experiences and became Christians who then, you know, became somewhat overbearing. It's, it's rare, I think, that anybody is argued uh, into a new position. Something has to sort of happen. Um, they have to be gripped by by something beyond themselves, I would say by the Holy Spirit. And, and that's not something we can kind of produce on command. You can't coerce somebody into changing their heart. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. When a conversion happens, there is this mix of faith and reason that takes place in it. And so, I mean, I, I don't think we can totally say that you can't be argued into it to the extent that having logical arguments helps when people start to ask these questions, you know, why should I believe oh, X, Y, or Z? But that alone does not account for it. And you can see that, I think, even if we want to think about these comic examples again. I mean, thinking about something like the X-Men, um, you know, in the X-Men, they, they have to be both argued into understanding that uh, mutants are not evil and have the experience of it um, in order to shift, in order to have a change. And the one is a little more concrete and easy to lay out in paper and the other one is not. One of the examples I was going to bring is from the, the Mice Templar, uh, which is by Brian Glass, who we're actually going to have on the show to talk about this towards the end of, of next month. But Mice Templar is this sort of this story. It's an image book, and it's this story of this sort of um, Tolkien-esque uh, world where where mice and other animals are sort of fighting. You know, they're like talking animals. They're basically people except they're mice fighting in this ancient kingdom for survival against various types of forces. And there's it's a very it has a very intricate world building component to it. But one of the things that's involved in it is, you know, they have this uh, group called the Templar, these knights of the Templar, these mice who used to defend the realm, who there was a religious component to it. They all worshipped the, the great god Wotan, and their scripture, if you want to call it that, are these stories of an ancient hero who founded the Templar, whose name is Kulen. And at some point, the Templar went out of existence to the point that at the beginning of the Mice Templar story, people aren't even sure. They, you know, they whisper about whether or not the Templar had ever even been a real thing. And you come to find out as the story goes that, yes, it was a real thing, and they fell apart after a while. Well, why did they fall apart? Well, they fell apart because they had these two factions that developed. One faction that believed that the stories of Kulan were literally true and... Another faction that said, no, those are just stories that, you know, we're, we are meant to learn from other things. And so you can almost kind of, 
you can almost kind of overlay our our theological divisions today, right? Okay, so here's the group that's a little more literalist that says everything in the Bible is is true. Here's the group that is a little more on the uh, other end of the spectrum that you know that says, oh, the Bible is just this giant metaphor or whatever. And what happens? Uh, I, you know, I won't spoil any of the story for you, but. Um, I think what comes out as you go through this story is that while one of those groups is a little bit closer to reality than the other one, in fact, neither one of them has true converts in it anymore because they've both gotten so obsessed with their thing that's going on in their heads, the proposition that they have come to defend, that neither one of them has actually uh, entered into the actual experience of knowing Wotan and, you know, all of these things anymore. And so you actually do see conversion, for instance, of, of the mouse Cassius, who becomes a mentor to Carrick, who's the main kind of hero of the story, and Carrick is kind of, in places, Carrick is kind of like a Christ figure in the story. But Cassius is this older um, mouse who had actually been a part of the more literalist group. But as you see the story go forward... You know, at some point he had kind of, even though he still had faith, quote unquote, he had kind of lost his faith, really, uh, because it was more about a proposition than the reality of it. And he didn't believe in Carrick or the prophecies or any of these things until he actually gets to know him. And that changes his heart as well as his mind. Well, that fits right in with what we were saying. Yes. <laughs> about the, yeah, I mean, a conversion is more uh, than a change of of mine and from a move to to one opinion to another i mean um at least in i think in, in, in an authentic kind of religious conversion in the christian sense it's to change uh one's heart from uh, you know stone to flesh you know uh, when saint paul converts he does more than just change his opinion he becomes a new man. He becomes a new creation in Christ. Let, let me ask one more question before we, uh, before we wrap the topic up, which we definitely need to do. But I'm just curious what you guys think, you know, because as we've identified as we've gone along here, there are a lot of examples in comics of conversions of a type. Um, and, you know, we mentioned a whole bunch of them. Uh, but it is relatively rare to have a conversion actually it's relatively rare to find even a religious conversion and i i off the top of my head i can't think of any stories of an actual christian conversion even in, even when we're talking about christian characters you know somebody like uh, daredevil or nightcrawler who are, are known for being catholic characters but there's there's not a lot of like you know the story of their conversion or whatever uh, coming through, I I just wonder if you guys have an opinion on why you think that is. Like, why aren't there um, examples of, um, po you know, positive examples of uh, Christian conversion in comics? Well, my my best guess with it is, I mean, I don't think you see many conversions of any other religions in comics. At least none that I can draw off the top of my head at this point in time. I think it's probably just a subject that comic writers, for whatever reasons, have strayed away from. Maybe it's just been their own personal inclinations. Maybe it's 
a little too much of a, a touchy subject, given all that we said before. But I don't think we see it. It's not just limited to Christianity. I don't think you see it in any other religious form either. Yeah, I think once you introduce a conversion like that, uh, I, I, um, like the the author uh, that you quoted was talking about, it becomes almost evangelistic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's nice to be religious. It's 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 another thing um, to to seemingly you know to seem to promote that religion by introducing a change in a character, unless it's like you know they become converted to like a cult or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, but see, that's that's what I think is interesting about this because I mean, because you could say you know, and um, certainly if you're talking about like especially with the big two like Marvel and DC, well, they don't want to alienate any readers, so they're not going to spend a lot of time, um, you know, making religious claims uh, because that would, you know, cut off a big segment of their audience. And I would buy that if not for the fact that there have been so many times when they've been willing to make very specific political claims that very obviously alienate a whole bunch of at least, if not their audience, a whole bunch of potential audience members uh, who have different politics. So why is there a different standard with that for religion? Or is it not that? Is it just that, you know, comic writers as a as a whole don't tend to be as religious and so don't have uh, that guess, experience? My guess would be it's a perhaps more of the latter, but I do think Father Matt makes a very good point in the sense that if you have that kind of conversion, there's an, you know, like a religious conversion, there is an obligation as a writer to keep up the threads of that, what that conversion looks like. And, and that may be a huge undertaking for someone, especially if they're not themselves of a particular religious persuasion. Mm-hmm. Do you get what I mean? Sure. Um, and that could come across. I, I do think you're absolutely right. I mean, Marvel has done some things recently that, um, given, you know, my own Christian beliefs, I don't necessarily agree with, and they've been unashamed to do that politically. Uh, but nonetheless, I don't know, religion and politics, they're both considered the verboten topics of conversation. Mm-hmm. Somehow politics is easier than religion. When it comes to politics, there's still an understanding that we are talking about what's true and what's not um we might disagree but we're we're debating about what's real what's the reality of things whereas religion uh in popular culture has been sort of relegated to the private sphere so we can have a vigorous public debate about you know political policy but not about religious truth because religious truth is an entirely private matter, and and it does not belong in public. That's that's such a great point, Father Matt. Yeah. And um and I, I wish I had the quote in front of me, but it makes me think of this quote from G.K. Chesterton, um, from a book he wrote called Heretics. What a great title, right? Which uh, I think came out. Um, Oh, sometime in the 19-teens, possibly as late as 1920, uh, but certainly, um, you know, a hundred years or more ago. Um, And yet he talks about exactly what you just mentioned there, which is 
that in modern society, he, he hadn't quite hit postmodern society as we have now, but in modern society, that uh, the one thing you're not allowed to have a, a set opinion about is uh, religion and, and uh, ultimate truth. You can have an opinion about politics, you can have an opinion about sports, you can have an opinion about uh, anything you like. And I, I'm just paraphrasing his quote, but he says, um, a man can have an opinion about Botticelli, he can have an opinion about a tram car, uh, he can have an opinion about anything except all things. For as soon as he has an opinion about all things, then he has a religion and he has nothing. And uh, th there's just something so... Uh, true about that that we've you know it's not that we've totally gotten rid of the concept of truth we do still have a concept of truth um, even though we have massive divisions over it you know um, just look at the the political fights in our country right now I mean they're very different visions of reality that are on the political stage right now and yet those on either side of them would argue to the bone that what they're arguing is just the facts, just the truth, just the, um, you know, the reality um, that, you know, if the other side only would stop being boneheaded and would accept, uh, then, then we could get on with, uh, with it. And yet when it comes to religion, when it comes to spirituality, when it comes to anything in that realm, you know, it's fine as long as your opinion stays within your own head and doesn't in any way suggest that maybe other people should have a similar uh, point of view. Yeah, very good point. Well, good conversation, and as always, there is certainly more that can be said about this, and we hope that some of you will say something about it. You know, gentlemen, over the summer, I got myself familiar with a trend that has really been sweeping the nation. I don't know if you all uh, have have gotten into this trend or have spent any time with the kids to find out about it, uh, but the social media is really booming these days. It's really becoming a thing, and um, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but apparently people can even access it on their phones, which is amazing to me. I still, I'm, I'm so old-fashioned that my cell phone is actually a rotary. But, uh, but other people, they, they manage to get on there. And uh, God and Comics, despite my uh, lackings, God and Comics as a whole has managed to come into the 21st century. We are on the social media. So tell us what you think about this topic. You can hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash godandcomics, or you can tweet at us. Uh, we are at God in Comics. Um, and uh, tell us what you think, and we promise not to troll you or uh, flame you um, or, um, I don't know, do any of the other bad things that can happen on social media. We won't, we won't do those things to you. Cyber bully. We won't cyber we won't bully cyber you. Bully. Um, we won't uh, Sandra Bullock you. We won't, uh, I don't know, anything else in that, in that realm. By the way, Sandra Bullock's uh, wonderful documentary film, The Net, uh, that's the last time I actually learned about these things. But anyway, we're going to leave all that aside for now and move into our final segment. Um, and our final segment, of course, here in Season 3 as it was in Season 2 and Season 1 before it. So now, friends, it's a tradition. This or that. This or that. This or that. Come on, everybody, let's this or that. This Thursday, September 29th, is the Feast of St. Michael. St. Michael 
or St. Gabriel? I would say St. Michael. I don't know why I think. <laughs> it's it's the sword, isn't it? It's got to be the sword. It must be the sword. I think yeah. of his place... I think of his place in the in Daniel's apocalypse, and uh, he just seems like a cool angel. So I'll go with Saint Michael. Like he should have his own like comic book. Yeah, you know, he's kind of like the superhero. He probably uh, does. There's probably some around. Christian artist somewhere who's done a Saint Michael. If there is, if if any of you listeners know of a Saint Michael comic, please point it out to us. Yeah. Dr. William Marston, mm-hmm. developer of the lie detector test and right. creator of Wonder Woman, yes. or Dr. Strangelove? Well, obviously, I'm going to have to go with Marston. I mean, you know, being the uh, great uh, fan of Wonder Woman that I am, I would have to. He was a pretty strange dude. Um, <laughs> and uh... he, he was. He was very weird. Yeah, when we do uh, our episode on Wonder Woman later this season, I look forward to uh, getting into some of his oddness. Jeff John or Papa John? Oh, Jeff John. (laughs) Jeff John's. As I said earlier, I think Jeff John's is is now one of the greatest writers in comics. But uh, Papa John's is just nasty <laughs> oh that's not true papa john's is, is pretty good from what i remember it's been a long time they don't have papa john's here um but i um, do not like papa john's we i mean now in, in drexel hill where i am we have uh we don't really have any of the chains we don't have pizza hut or or um Domino's or any of those but we have like a thousand family-run pizza places i mean it's amazing yes. how many pizza places there are in, in drexel hill um, which is not a very large place. Yeah, um, but, you can go uh, to Roxborough and get Papa John's. They have they have one there. Well, but why would I do that? I mean, I can just, you know I I practically get hit with a pizza every time I walk outside in Drexel Hill. No. I need to <laughs> and go somewhere be else. For pizza, it. I'm sure. Yeah, it is it, for sure. So, um, Father Jonathan, Zach Snyder, or John Calvin. Um, Silence. So, I think this, the answer to this depends on what the medium is, because I know nothing about Zack Snyder. Well, actually, that's not true. I, I, I have seen some places where he uh, relays a, a pretty um, Nietzsche-esque kind of dystopian uh, philosophy. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that he whether he believes in God or not, but I would guess he doesn't. I don't know anything about John Calvin's skill as a filmmaker, um, but I have to believe that John Calvin would make better films than Zack Snyder um, because whatever else you can say about John Calvin, he is not a trained monkey, uh, and I'm fairly certain a trained monkey could make better films than Zack Snyder. Um, so I'm going to have to go with, with John Calvin, uh, on this one, despite, uh, the various differences I have with Calvin on many things. Um, I would take him over Zack Snyder. You didn't say that movie about John Calvin called the burning of Vetus. (laughs) No, no. I've seen various. It was was in French. Of course. 
I've seen various films by the uh, great filmmaker Pastor Hans Feeney about John Calvin um, on Lutheran satire, um, and uh, he is not kind to Calvin. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah. This one is for Father Kyle. Mark Zuckerberg or Lex Luthor? Lex Luthor. <laughs> I haven't seen a whole lot of movies with Mark Zuckerberg. He was the one who played Lex Luthor in. Uh, well, in... no, it wasn't Mark Zuckerberg. Wait, 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 it was the guy who played Mark Zuckerberg played Lex Luthor. That's right. Jesse Eisenberg yeah. played both Jesse of them. Eisenberg. Yes. Right, right, right. They were played by the same. That doesn't character. mean they are the same guy. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Their names got crosswired in my head. Did you, did you see Lex Luthor's performance in The French Connection? <laughs> no, I didn't. I wish I had. Yeah, yeah. It was he was really convincing. Father Jonathan, a 57 Chevy or a cab piloted by a kidnapper? Uh, I think, first of all, that we ought to have some bell sound or something that goes off every time the 57 Chevy is mentioned. So that this is the first mention of the 57 Chevy in season three. And uh, I'm glad to see that it didn't take us long uh, to get there. Um, I, I'm, I would have to go with a 57 Chevy, probably against just a regular cab, but certainly a cab being driven by a kidnapper. Kyle, vestry meetings or dental appointments? <laughs> oh, wow, that's interesting. I just had a dental appointment this morning, and I had a vestry meeting last week. And I will certainly, of the two, choose the vestry meeting. Mm. Oh, okay. Good. It's like Good. pulling teeth. <laughs> well, sometimes it is. Sometimes and the dental uh, visit can feel like that too. Yes. But up, up, but up, My teeth ground, so that was fun. Why, why would you have to have your teeth ground? To put my jaw back into place because my jaw is slightly misaligned and, uh, and it's creating some issues. Oh, gosh. So, that scares me because my jaw is a little off, too, so I'm a little worried about that now. Yeah, so my jaw is feeling <laughs> sore today. My whole jaw is completely crooked. Yeah. yeah. So they once suggested that they break my jaw oh, when gosh. I was in high school. And, mm -hmm. and put my, like, whole face in, like, a football helmet. And, you know, like that, like, for, like, a year or something like that. So I had a friend who they, they did that to her when she, when we were in high school. And she was, her mouth was basically sewed shut for the better part of a year. She had to have, like, liquids. I mean, she had a way of getting stuff through a straw, but that was about oh. it. it was awful. I, and, and I thought, well, what exactly is the problem with my jaw being crooked and they were like well you know it just doesn't look right but <laughs> <laughs> i'd like to be able to unhinge my jaw like a snake um so i can, uh, can have like huge cheesesteaks that's right exactly <laughs> i just swallow them whole you know <laughs> okay well that's gonna do it for our show for today then uh, if you want to listen to the show again, you can go check it out on our website, godandcomics.com. You can email us from there, too. Uh, and uh, you can find out about some of the rad stuff we talked about today. We always post links up there. 
Our show is subscribable through iTunes. You can download us through iTunes and subscribe there. And while you're on iTunes, if you would give us a rating and a review, we would love that. It, it, it really helps us and it helps other people to find the show. Um, and so um, Father Matt has promised uh, to grant you three free sins if you, um, if you go over there and, and review and, and put the thing up. So uh, thanks, Father Matt, for that. Now that he's a rector, he has that power. Um, yes, I have the power to grant indulgences. That's right, yeah. And, uh, and, and then Father Kyle will be nailing um, theses to my door. That's right. <laughs> Let's hope it's theses and not anything that rhymes with theses, because that would be pretty bad. Um, theses or theses? Theses. Theses. You had it right the first time. and theses. Theses. <laughs> Our theme music, which you are hopefully banging your head to right now, is by the one, the only, Father Paul Wheatley, who I understand has been able to unhinge his jaw for many years now and actually once swallowed an entire antelope in a single sitting. <laughs> Until next time, I am Father Jonathan Michigan. I'm Father Kyle Tomlin. And I'm Father Matt Stromberg. And we'll see you.